idea that an experiential reality is a construct designed to impair the individual's ability to function without an external framework is one that was brought into clearer view in the original movie The Matrix. Though presented as a fictional storyline, The Matrix, according to 30-plus-year investigative journalist and author John Rappaport, is quite real. By digging deep into the history of propaganda, information control, and human psychology, John has put together an absolutely incredible thesis that explains how reality is created for the masses rather than by them. But he doesn't just stop at presenting the issue of a matrix-like existence. John explains that by reclaiming individual power, ignited chiefly through creative imagination, we can begin to design our own reality rather than allowing the matrix to do it for us. Rappaport, it is such a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show today. You know, I've been so looking forward to speaking with you and to hear your perspective on two key ideas that I hope we can somehow flush out in our discussion, at least preliminarily. And that's what we call, or what we'll call constructed reality, what uh, has also been popularly termed the matrix. And the other idea being creative imagination and the power associated with imagination. Now, the former idea is one that apparently many people, unbeknownst to them, are living within 24-7. The latter is perhaps the key to exiting this matrix. So I want to mention at the outset that you have compiled some absolutely explosive data and evidence to support both models, which are included in your collections, The Matrix Revealed and Exit from the Matrix, respectively. So our talk today will be based primarily on these two collections, these two ideas. I'd like to start out, John, the discussion on this matrix of reality. What is it? How is it? And how did the masses become so entrapped within it? Well, to start with, uh, constructed reality or the matrix, I would say is a series of layers or levels uh, that people, you know, become aware of, some people do, Mm -hmm. certain ways. For example, political reality. A person may come to the realization that we're really living in a country in America that has one political party with two heads. And despite some differences, there are certain key elements of uh, repression and so forth that just keep rolling on from one administration to another, from one Congress to another, and that these are very much involved with corporations and banks and money and so on and so forth. So people begin to explore how reality is built and constructed because they see what major media have to say about these political parties and about the government and about corporations, and then they realize, well, that's fluff it's just some sort of game it's a an illusion that's presented to us about certain issues that are in deep conflict and the conflict at a higher level though doesn't really exist so people begin to get wise to certain elements mm-hmm. but in my research the point was to go as deep as possible and so I eventually ended up in the arena of mind control. Mm. 
information control, behavior control, thought control, emotional control, operant conditioning, programming. What is it about human beings that makes them so prone to accepting all sorts of realities that are constructed for them? And in that respect, my work with a late colleague and hypnotherapist, Jack True, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, was a key uh, episode, I would say, in the late 1980s, early 90s. Because one of the first things that Jack said to me was, he said, you know, you can hypnotize a person and you can change their concept of space and time and energy. I said, really? He said, oh, yeah. He said, I've done it numerous times. I said, well, what exactly do you mean? He said, well, start with the idea that, uh, start with the idea that, um, the space-time continuum itself is a kind of program or is a kind of concept or construct that everybody who lives on this planet accepts as, you know, taught, described, perceived, experienced, and so forth. He said, but you can create altered states in which people experience these elements in vastly different ways. And I said, well, for example, he said, well, elongated time, um, expanded space, multiple spaces, different dimensions of space, which uh, he said in therapy, I've had clients explore and tell me what they discover in these alternative spaces. Um, Tapping into unused reservoirs of deep energy that could change a person's outlook on life and their own sense of power and well-being and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, that's a pretty deep form of mind control then that we're dealing with. He said, oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's where his research ultimately led him was what is it about the human mind that seems to be prepared to accept a diminished and distorted view of reality as being the one and only reality? Mm -hmm. Why do people fall for that? What is it about their outlook or their basic um, uh, conditioning or predisposition such that they accept a situation in which, in essence, their own power is fantastically diminished. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's where the research really began for me at a much deeper level, because matrix or constructed reality not only involves what other people are, you know, quote, doing to us, but what we're doing to ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's where it all began. That's, wow. Well, I don't know that I heard an answer to that big question. What is it about the human uh, brain or mind, as it were, that seems to have a, a proclivity to conditioning? Um, I don't know if you're prepared to answer that. I don't know if proclivity is the right word, but rather it is. so susceptible to to programming, and it seems that's accelerating. Do, do you, it, how, how would you answer that in a nutshell, if you could? Uh, well, I would say that... Um, 
because I've also, in addition to working as an investigative reporter, also been a painter for mm-hmm. the last 50 years or I'm so. I'm aware of that, yes. Um, you know, I've had many experiences with people looking at my work, looking at the work of other painters, walking through museums, talking to people in museums, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And um, people want to say that what is invented or created should resemble what's already there. Mm-hmm. They have a propensity to accept realism, in other words. Look at the tree in that painting. It looks exactly like a tree. Isn't that fantastic? And the and the bowl of fruit. I mean, those apples look real enough to pick up and eat and so on and so forth. And along with that comes a kind of inbred or inborn sense of harmony, symmetry, balance, etc. That these become the not only the aesthetic standards of most people, but they actually uh, bleed into their choices and directions they take in life and their preferences, what they like and what they don't like about people, about situations, about ideas, etc., etc. And what uh, Jack True discovered and what we discovered together as we began to do research was that this was just a layer of programming. Mm -hmm. In other words, there was nothing really final about the idea that reality as presented to us should be final or that in our creative impulses we should do nothing more than try to copy it and make it another version of it and repeat it over and over again. And this sort of addiction, which is far more uh, profound than an addiction to drugs, Mm -hmm. is what drives people to say, well, reality must be as I see it, as I perceive it. It couldn't be anything else because um, that's what I need. I mean, they're not saying that last part, but that's the addiction part. People Mm -hmm. need, they have a great need and hunger for reality as it is presented to them and as they perceive it and a tremendous aversion to considering the possibility that there are other realities that are far different. Mm -hmm. And that's what glues people into constructed reality. I get it. I get it. You know, John, we could go down a whole nother road with that. But, you know, when you said, I believe repetition, that, that the, the, the brain mind, as it were, has this just they're habituated toward repetition and routine. It makes me think of the part of the brain that perhaps was uh, activated over activated many years ago. That part of the brain we call the R complex or some people call it the reptilian brain. Basal ganglia is another term I've heard. And that's where the seat of repetition and routine and ritual lie. And I wonder, you know, as we, we, we're talking about the state of affairs with people looking to, to look at reality that way, if that's the part of the brain that is hyperactive. Do you know what I mean? It's, I think it is. Yeah. 
Very mm. interesting. Okay. I don't think there's any question about it. Yeah. I think that that is exactly what is uh, activated in most people. Mm-hmm. And okay. they kind of equate that with the survival impulse. Absolutely. So, therefore, yeah. that link is, is forged. And for most people, they don't feel that, you know, there would be any possibility of escape from that. Uh-huh. But, yeah, the repetition okay, I wake up today and it's similar to yesterday and I do the same things and the routine is pretty much the same. And this has a very uh, strange sort of satisfaction connected with it because now I'm on familiar ground, I know what to expect, et cetera, et cetera. And if somebody were suddenly to say, well, you know, the space and the time and the energy that you perceive is really just a curtain which could be torn away and then you would see something else entirely, mm-hmm. they would say, that's the last thing that I want to get involved with. I, you know, that's that's a danger sign. That's yeah. something that I, I have to avoid at all costs, yeah. whether they would articulate that or not. That's how they would respond. Yeah. Uh, but in reality, or, or in, you know, super reality, that's what is liberating. And so one of the elements in my uh, collection, The Matrix Revealed, was a series of interviews. Well, there are about 40 interviews with Jack True. Mm -hmm. And then there are interviews with a a propaganda operative, retired propaganda operative, who uses the pseudonym of Ellis Metaboy. Mm -hmm. And he described to me in great detail the nuts and the bolts of how he ran very long-term propaganda campaigns on behalf of certain uh, cores of elites around the world with the you know, express intention of deceiving the entire global population about certain events and issues and so on, and how he used his knowledge of this... Uh, repetitive center of the brain, other elements of human programming to plug into humans so that they would accept this matrix that he was creating. And he used a language and described his work in terms that I had never heard any propaganda operative talk about before. I mean, this was a real insider. Mm. And he talked about how you can use time, pace, rhythm, uh, space as part and parcel of propaganda to convince people at a subliminal level that you are telling them the truth when in fact you're doing just the reverse of that. Wow. Oh boy. Yeah, I've heard you talk about Ellis Metavoy before and I, I I wanted to hear more about that. I'm glad you brought that up. That's very key. Well, you know, <clears throat> I heard you say in one of your previous interviews, I think it was with Regina Meredith of Guy TV, that the Matrix is quote, the collective goo, the big con, the big scam, and the cosmic rolling of the dice in exactly the wrong direction. You know, it seems as if this collective goo is getting thicker and thicker. Do you feel that there is an acceleration, John, on the part of, let's call them the goo makers, if you will, to to ensure that people stay trapped? Or, you know, is there an acceleration of this, or has it been business as usual all along? What do you think? First of all, I'm going to steal that phrase from <laughs> Goo Makers. Yeah. Goo Makers. 
Um, yeah, there's no question that it's accelerating. Mm. In different times and places, you know, it's been worse than at other times. But uh, what I was actually uh, intimating in that interview with Regina was these days it's more and more about the group, mm-hmm. the collective, yes. the mass. Um, and that is being presented to people as a kind of messianic, you know, truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, our only way out of the mess that we're in is through the group, through the collective, through the unification of all thought, etc., etc. And of course, it's presented in very uplifting language. You know, and so people fall prey to it because it has this sense of enlightenment, illumination, a way out of, uh, you know, our current problems and so forth. Whereas the individual is now being touted as the, the reason why we have the mess in the first place. Mm-hmm. Agreed. You know, so individual now equals unbridled, greedy, criminal individual. That's the propaganda equation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whereas the matrix, in the sense that it is one giant glob of goo, is really all about erasing the concept and even the memory of the individual. And I've done some research and published a bit of it about um, what I would call the ascending uh, sociological academic viewpoint on the individual, mm-hmm. which is that there is no such thing, that it was some sort of a faulty concept to begin with, it was a lie, it was a deception, and that somehow we have to get rid of it, otherwise the human race is doomed. And so... I see it all around me. I see the uh, diminishment of the individual mm-hmm. and the ascendance of the group as the answer. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, people will say, well, certain kinds of groups, though, are, are very good and that's what we really need and so on and so forth. But again, my experience with groups is that over the long term, although they may do good, they eventually settle into becoming mind control factories because the individuals in these traditional groups have to uh, sacrifice their own power, their own uniqueness, their own creative potential in order to align themselves with the objectives of the group. And so this becomes more matrix, more uh, constructed reality, more deception, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And that's the goo of the matrix, Absolutely. is convincing the human race that there is no such thing as the individual. We are all the same, mm-hmm. and all we have to do is to align our ideas, reduce them down, to a precious few, and then we will be able to express our power altogether. 
as attractive as that is to some people, it is, um, and this was explained to me again in great detail by Ellis Metaboy, how he used that notion over and over again in order to float his uh, deceptions by first appealing to the sense of the group, mm-hmm. which was, as he told me, he said, it's a pure fantasy, it's a construct. I mean, you break the group down, you have individuals, otherwise there is no such thing as a group. But my job, he said, as a propagandist, was to make the concept of the group the primary concept and to destroy the notion of the individual. Wow. Confirmation of what uh, I think some of us, more of us are, are starting to suspect that group. I think, you know, you think of the New Age movement, as it were, um, John, the, the, the whole idea of we're all one. It always seemed a little suspect to me. Um, and again, we could go off on a tangent there. I do believe that there's a connective force between us, but we are individuals um, and we've lost uh, individuality. And I think it has been coerced, no doubt. Well, you know, to segue, I think this segues perfectly because I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention within the context of the collective goo makers of reality, <laughs> the absolute insanity having risen out of the headlines uh, of these uh, recent grand jury acquittals in Ferguson, Missouri and New York City. What is happening, if you don't mind, I want to, and I want to talk also about sort of a paradox that has come up for me in looking at the, the unfolding of this having to do with the collective as well as division. What's happening here in your estimation? And the, if these incidents are part and parcel of the matrix-like construct, assuming there is some stated goal in mind, what do you think that goal or goals, I should say, are? Well, I think it's clear that the goal, and these are definitely operations. I mean, this is not just a casual happening. Um, The goal is the ancient, you know, well-tested goal of divide and conquer, which also involves distract, divert attention away from other things which are crimes being committed by the same people who are implementing divide and conquer. So, I mean, it's pretty simple, you know. If I'm, you know, evil incarnate and I'm doing evil things to to harm and and destroy people, uh, then I don't want that to be known. I don't want my illusions or cover stories to be penetrated. I want uh, protection. And so one of the things that I do right off the bat is I stage grand diversions and distraction to divide people and set them against each other, whether it's by a race or religion or ethnicity or nations, however it works, uh, so that they are completely tied up in that and can't perceive what is going on behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. So in the case of Trayvon Martin, which is an earlier story, and of the recent one with Michael Brown, what you saw was it just so happened that government, media, immediately jumped on these uh, deaths as primary stories that... Mm -hmm represented in a symbolic way 
uh, racism. I mean, if you were to go back and look at how quickly the response and how overwhelming the response was by the media in these two cases, Mm -hmm. as opposed to thousands of other cases (laughs) that were never given any publicity at all, the first thing you notice is, well, it turns out that these stories had a twist. The initial uh, description did not appear to hold up over time of exactly what happened in both these cases. Now, I'm not really talking about, you know, ultimately what happened on the street or in the, uh, you know, the, the apartment complex or whatever it was. I'm talking about the way the story, the narrative was constructed. Mm-hmm. What we got was... Mm-hmm oh, this happened, isn't that horrible and disgusting and and criminal and racist and so forth, and then a week or two later, when everyone is really stirred up, wait a minute, this is not the story. The story is something different. New evidence is emerging in both of these cases, Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown. No, wait a minute, we're getting a different account now. It didn't really happen, so it happened that way and so forth. Well, what does that do? that inflames people even more on both sides, right? Mm -hmm. So that by the time you get to a judgment call, whether it's the prosecutor deciding whether to prosecute or the grand jury whether to indict, now you have people, you know, on a knife edge of violence. So now when the decision comes down, you have milked the situation for its the most destructive possible potential that you can, so that the result afterwards is going to be as bad as it possibly can be. Mm -hmm. And this takes everybody away from, uh, I mean, we could sit here for three or four hours and just talk about the actual crimes that are being committed by the people behind the curtain, the elites who are constructing reality for the rest of us. And it also weakens people's capacity to resist what is happening to them because their attention is so wrapped up in these um, horrific diversionary cases and stories. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's all matrixology at the level of the covert op, how to stage an operation, how to have a cover story, how to twist the truth, how to inflame people's emotions to the highest degree possible, how to set them against each other, uh, how to eliminate any possible stories of how, for example, in this case, black and white people get along. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there's a million stories you could publish. Go into any workplace practically in the United States and you'll see black people and white people working side by side. Of course. And Hispanic people and Chinese people and Japanese and so forth and so on. But these are not stories. They don't rate because they would, you know, in terms of the constructed reality, give people the wrong idea Mm -hmm. that, you know, individuals can actually get along. Yeah, you got it. You got it. Wow. Well, you know, th- this is the paradox I wanted to bring up to you, John, in terms of what what's being um, uh, gotten out of this story by we're going to call them the goo makers from now on. The paradox, you know, as we talk about the collective group mind, we're seeing this 
this act uh, somehow displayed through the well-publicized protests and the further proliferation of these organized events. I'm, I'm talking, of course, about the, the, the recent grand jury acquittals in Ferguson and New York City. Um, so we got the collectivism thing being uh, proliferated, but we also, as you said, have the divide and conquer program being proliferated in one event. So I think it stands to reason that m most, if not all, of these orchestrated events are multifaceted in their agendas. No question about it. Mm. In fact, one of the first things that I discussed uh, in interviewing Ellis Medavoy was mm. the nature of, you know, a covert operation, because he considered all of his propaganda work to be that. And he said, look, you've got to understand, there are little ops and big ops. Now, if you're talking about a major long-term covert operation, you are talking about multiple payoffs yeah. at multiple levels and multiple staging for various reasons with, with uh, rewards at different levels uh, for the people who are involved, most of whom have absolutely no idea that they're involved in a covert op at all. And he said, you have to understand that. So don't get into any arguments about, quote, the real intention of this covert operation, if it's a major one, because, you know, you're talking about six, seven, eight, ten, fifteen different outcomes mm -hmm. that are supposed to happen as a result of staging these kinds of realities. And so we went on from there, because I had indeed experienced that when I wrote my first book, AIDS, Inc., in 1988, and my research concluded that from the science itself, there was absolutely no reason to assume that HIV had ever been proved to cause what was being called AIDS, which <laughs> for somebody who had only been in the game of reporting for six years really knocked me off my chair. And so I began to reconstruct the whole, my whole research effort to look at it from a different direction that essentially this whole operation called AIDS was a covert op. And then what were the payoffs? And, you know, six, seven levels, eight levels, ten levels, who benefits? Um, it became enormous when looked at from that perspective. And since that time, I've looked at various kinds of medical fraud issues mm -hmm. and political fraud and so forth as, okay, is this just a little operation or is it a big one? If it's a big one, we're looking here at lots of different layers and benefits and um, staged outcomes. So, yes, these things are multifaceted, but... You can always count on that somehow the group, the collective, the goo, is being propagandized as the solution to the problem, the solution to the crisis, the solution to the, uh, you know, the issue at hand, because that's the game. And to give you a much larger version, if you look at the nations involved in World War II, 
who were fighting each other. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the outcome, not in terms of the military victory, but in terms of post-war strategy. You discover that the real intention of the people who were funding World War II on both sides was to create out of the ashes of World War II much greater, larger collectives and groups and organizations than had ever existed before on the face of the planet. Note, for example, the European Union. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, EU. Mm-hmm. You know, out of the ashes of nothing in Europe, uh, we have, uh, I don't know, 40 years later, one government over you know, two-thirds of all of Europe, Mm -hmm. which was, in fact, the German plan, you know, during World War II. But here it had been implemented by other means. And so always the goo becomes the answer to the problem. Wow. That's that's heavy. It is heavy. It is really. I have to to pause and get my my head around that, and yet it it makes perfect sense to me. Well, you know, speaking of making sense, I want to spend a little bit of time discussing the importance of logic and analysis. You are a huge advocate of, uh, you know, using logic and analysis, not in in the most obvious sense, you know, particularly in relation, John, to what's going on right now, and frankly, what's been going on when it comes to media headlines. Despite what, to me, and to growing numbers of people, fortunately, these days are more obvious orchestrations, propaganda campaigns, and such, there are still far too many who are buying into this official narrative, the official narrative of the day, hook, line, and sinker. And you've been a big proponent of a reassessment of the lost art of logic and analysis. What is your take on how the lack of these faculties have played into this mass buy-in of the official narrative? I'll give you an example Mm. from a recent email that I got. You know, I've been writing articles recently about um, the situation in Hawaii with Monsanto and GMOs. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I get a a note from a reader who says, I discussed your work with people in the anti-Monsanto movement and ask them what they thought, and they said, it wasn't true. Is it or isn't it? And so, you know, I started to write that person back, but of course, I've gotten a little smarter (laughs) about (laughs) who to respond to. Exactly. You know, it's like, wait a minute. What exactly about my articles did you present to these anti-Monsanto people in Hawaii? What exactly did you tell them I said? And what exactly did they say was not true? Um, You know, now that's one of the, you know, the most gross examples of the loss of logic, Mm -hmm. where people are not able to think outside of generality. Absolutely. They just Mm -hmm. can't do it. You get specific with somebody, and they just fold up and collapse yeah. because they've never learned how to actually analyze anything and take it apart. All they know is generality. And then they go on from there into kind of a hazy, daisy, who knows what. 
atmosphere. So the thing that I learned when I went to college many moons ago, and I had a, a teacher um, who was a great logician and also a great teacher and took a couple of courses and had many conversations with him, was he was basically telling me, I want you to be able to look at any text and take it apart and decide whether or not the line of reasoning of the author is valid or not. And if not, why not? And if so, why so? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to show you how to do that. But more than that, I'm going to have you exercise your mind so that it becomes sharpened and more sharpened and more sharpened to be able to do this kind of thing in order to analyze information. Now, of course, at that time, which we're talking about the 1950s, <laughs> uh, the world was not what it is now. Now we have, you know, a tsunami of daily information to deal with. Right. How does one pick that apart and separate the wheat from the chaff? How, and, and so in The Matrix Revealed, you know, I include uh, my 18 lesson logic course, a beginning logic course with lesson plans and so forth and so on to begin to acquaint people with what they don't learn in school anymore because the elementary and secondary school systems have been wiped clean of any kind of systematic courses in logic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whereas in you know, there used to be this thing called the trivium, which was a traditional mode of education that included grammar, logic, and rhetoric, but no more, and it hasn't been the case for a long, long time. Wow. So what happens is people can't think. Absolutely. They can react. You feed them a slogan or a generality or kind of a goo of uplifting sentiment, and they'll go for it if you position it correctly but they can't think mm -hmm. they don't know that there's such a thing as a line of reasoning that goes from A to B to C to D so if you ask them to ferret it out they don't even know what you're talking about right. now this is a really dire situation I mean um, and of course a perfect uh, hunting ground for propagandists and that is no accident yeah, yeah. that we've seen this elimination of, of, of that kind of thing. So what I say is that the current education system in America actually creates ADHD. Mm. Forget diagnosing it, which is a whole other kind of fraud. Just assume that it creates it because it doesn't take up the analysis of information to any significant degree long enough so that anybody understands what's going on. Mm -hmm. It shifts from one piece of information to another, from one subject to another, one topic to another. So that students, when they finally, you know, crawl out of that system, are just glad to be liberated and they are all suffering from shortened attention spans yeah. because they've been ripped from pillar to post for 12 years. Yeah. And they never get a good grounding in anything. Right. Well, never mind the students, you know, after all of this, uh, you know, uh, curriculum on that once existed on logic and analysis was annihilated from the system. 
there, there are perhaps lost causes, but John, look at the adults who are old enough who did have that at one point, but their attention span is shot as well. So apparently there are programs that are existing right now to, to ensure that any measure of, uh, uh, well, the attention span is lost, and so logic and analysis must go down the tubes with it. I'm looking at, you know, my peers. I'm 51 years old, and people who say, I, I, you know, I can't even get through an article without twitching or, you know, uh, moving and, and moving on to something else. Of course, technology, I think, has been, uh, has exacerbated that as well. But uh, really, we're being assaulted from all angles. So it's not just the students, it's the adults. Absolutely. And I'll give you two things on that quickly. One is, mm. if you're isolated... Let's say you understand something about logic. You know how to take things apart and put them back together again. You know how to analyze thought. You know what a formal argument actually is. You know what a line of reasoning is. You understand deduction. You understand something about uh, whether a particular um, river of thought is valid or invalid. But you are isolated you live among people who don't have a clue about any of that. Mm -hmm. Unless you have very strong commitment over time, you are going to dull your own perception, your own capacity to mesh with your environment. So that is one major factor. And the other, I would say, and you mentioned it in passing earlier, is the New Age. Mm. The New Age was as far as thought and education was concerned, an operation aimed directly at completely destroying any form of uh, rational education. I know that because I taught school in private schools during that transition period from, say, 1961 to 1973. Mm -hmm. And I saw the difference in the students during that time period and what happened to them and how it wasn't just the drugs it was also the sense of nothing that anybody says that sounds reasonable or rational should be paid attention to because there's something fundamentally wrong with it instead we have to connect with the goo the cosmological goo right. that is going to rescue all of us. And then, of course, you've got all kinds of diluted and watered-down versions of Asian metaphysics and philosophy imported into the West, and you had people that no longer could or wanted to even think about anything. It was just all passe. No, that was all just crazy stuff. We don't do that anymore. Now we just kind of merge. Now, with 10 to 15 years of that under your belt, um, it's going to be very hard. I mean, you have to consciously have a reason mm -hmm. <laughs> to remain uh, committed to any kind of logical discourse. Yeah. Agreed. You there? Yeah. Oh, okay. I, <laughs> I was hoping we didn't get disconnected. That is, that is something to pause on. It's absolutely true. Okay, well, listen, John, we've got about 
Oh, about 20 or so minutes left, and we've really kind of given the, the lowdown on what's been happening and what is happening. And uh, so the question becomes, what do we do with this? How do we analyze this information? How do we uh, switch from reaction to reflection, of which I am a big proponent of contemplation? Uh, so we're going from the importance of logic and analysis to what may seem counter to these abilities, and that's the imagination the imagination. Your ideas on this subject, you know, are what really prompted me to contact you about doing this interview. You know, the average person, when you say imagination to them, would think, well, yeah, what about it? <laughs> it's, <laughs> but it's viewed largely, it, it's viewed largely as a passive, if not futile act. And you and I disagree with this as assessment, of course. What got you thinking so strongly about the power of creative imagination? What set you on this course? Well, I can pinpoint it. <clears throat> the summer of 1962 in New York, mm -hmm. I decided, after looking at uh, some paintings by uh, a friend of mine in his studio, that I had to paint. And I had no background, no perceivable talent, no training, no anything, but it was just, this is something I've got to do. And so, uh, through a remarkable series of uh synchronous events, I ended up living at almost no rent in a gigantic art studio off of Fifth Avenue in Manhattan for a summer, uh, a studio that was filled with paper, canvas, paints, water, etc., etc., etc. And although I was uh, starting out mainly to write uh, a work of fiction that I was in involved with, I began to paint. And I, on maybe the second or third day, I got up in the morning, I started painting, I looked up and it was dark out. And I thought, wow. I was so involved, so engaged, that everything about my response to the world was completely transformed in a matter of a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. At the time, I had been having horrendous problems with my family who also lived in New York. I mean, just long-term, unresolvable problems. And within about two days, I fixed all that. And everything changed. And I felt completely different about myself, my life, my future, my power, my energy, my freedom, everything just absolutely transformed. Uh, and it was all in a, through a positive activity, which in this case was painting. There was no analysis involved, no remembering of the past, no working out of issues, no, none of this. It was as if I had just simply moved up five or six levels of consciousness in a very short amount of time. And then... I mean, began to experience some things that people would call paranormal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I realized at that point that, okay, logic is what you use to deal with this reality. If you don't have it, you're at sea. You don't know how to deal with what's out there in the world. 
what people do, how they think, what they say, what they write, information, lies, deceptions, propaganda. You're totally at the mercy of all of that because you can't think, basically. Mm -hmm. Because thinking at this level of reality where we exist in this physical world, you've got to have logic. And you've got to have what stems out of logic, which is the ability to critically analyze what is there. But having gotten that under your belt through imagination and creative power, if you can access that, you are now moving up in consciousness way beyond anything that this matrix is trying to program. This is where Exit from the Matrix, which happens mm-hmm. to be the name of my second collection, comes in because it's filled with imagination exercises, yes. 60, 70, 80 of them that I developed, some of which in, in concert with Jack True and others on my own and others by doing research on ancient Tibetan practices that are really quite extraordinary. Yeah, I, I, mean, want to, mm, I want to talk about that. Yeah, go ahead, Tibetan culture. I mean, yeah. Uh, it's the only civilization, I would say, that I've ever encountered in all my years of research on planet Earth that really put creative power at the forefront of their own cosmology. Mm-hmm. In other words, instead of saying, okay, we're going to give you uh, open a door and show you what reality really is behind little reality. They didn't do that, which is what most all spiritual systems and religions do. They say, we have insight, special insight, and we're going to show you what higher reality consists of and what you can do about it and so on and so forth, and they all have different versions and so forth. But instead, what the Tibetans did was they said, no, we're going to show you how, essentially, universe is a product of mind. Mm-hmm. We're going to show that to you, not by telling it to you, but by giving you exercises to do so that you'll be able to experience it for yourself, and then you'll understand the limitless nature of your own imagination and creative power to make realities of your own choosing fact in this dimension, in Mm -hmm. this world. That was their whole program until it was kind of buried and covered over by a lot of baggage that right. came in later. Right. And so from that, that's how I developed Exit from the Matrix, because that to me will always be the cardinal fact. Everybody wants to give you content. You know, hmm. this is what I discovered, and this is what lies behind that. And this is the ultimate reality, and this is how, you know, and blah, 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 blah. But really, what we're dealing with in terms of spiritual evolution is the liberation of each individual's own imagination and creative power mm-hmm. along whatever line he or she wants to deploy it. And then along the way, and this is not a snap of the finger, this is a life lived 
um, many lives lived, that individual will come to their own insights mm-hmm. on what ultimate means. Because ultimate really is a byproduct or a secondary function of the use of one's own imagination and creative power. That's how you get to that. Right. Wow. So, I mean, when you really step back and look at this, I think one might say that all of whether you're creating reality or it's being created for you, it is still a product of mind. It is still, in essence, a construct I, does that does that make sense? A construct. Yes, yes. Ultimately, that would be true. Right. At a somewhat lower level, what I would say is, you have a choice. Mm-hmm. You can accept the reality that's being created for you, oh, or sure. you can create your own. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting when you talk about the the Tibetan culture, early Tibetan culture, and I, I'm reading your great book, The Secret Behind Secret Societies. I encourage everyone to get that. Um, you <clears throat> make mention of the t- Tibetan culture and a woman named Alexandra David Neal, who I'm actually familiar with. She studied uh, Tibetan culture relative to the phenomenon of reality creation, where she observes how mental direction, very distinct thought forms can even create other forms of consciousness like deities. I know you mentioned the term deities in the book. I'm familiar with her talking about the idea. Have you heard of the term tulpa? Sure. Yeah. These were, I wouldn't call them deities when you think of deities as sort of a god figure or godhead, little g, uh, but Tulpa rather being sort of an offshoot of the the originator of uh, uh, this thought form that would actually culminate into uh, what we would look at as an individual. And apparently these Tulpas, these little Tulpas were created uh, to be kind of helpers in, in the environment. And um, But you know, there's a whole story about that, but immediately when I read... Uh, your your uh, your thoughts and um, uh, about Tibetan culture relative to imagination and and uh, reality being a product of mind. I thought of that. That's that's absolutely fascinating. Oh, it's really. incredibly fascinating stuff. I mean, these <clears throat> people were really on to something. Yeah. The other guy to look at is the author John Blofeld mm-hmm. and his book on the don't have the title right in front of me. Tantric mysticism of Tibet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was the only book that he ever wrote about Tibet. Uh, he, like Alexander David Neal, was a nomad and lived in many countries for many years. And his description of what uh, was called deity visualization, that process, that exercise, that practice of the early Tibetans was truly uh <laughs> enormous breakthrough in what consciousness, creative consciousness, is really all about because it was a creative exercise. It was an exercise of imagination, pure and simple. Mm -hmm. And it went to extraordinary uh, lengths to produce elevated states of consciousness in the committed practitioners who, who used it. And when I was writing the book, The Secret Behind Secret Societies, I had occasion to speak with uh, someone in a fairly high position at a a school that uh, in America that teaches some elements of Tibetan um, practice, let's say. Mm-hmm. 
And um, her response to my questions about DD visualization was simply that uh, this was just too advanced, uh, that, you know, this was not something that they were prepared to get into. She knew about it, but, uh, you know, there had to be many, many, many uh, phases of preparation in order to be ready to even think about trying that, et cetera, et cetera. And I found that very revealing because I see no evidence of that in ancient Tibet. Hmm. What I see is tremendous daring tremendous okay let's let's take this to the limit you know okay let's do it it's kind of like uh on another level when a person decides to live their life basically through and by imagination that's that kind of decision well i'm going to live that way you know i'm going to create the reality that i want to create that's it, mm-hmm. period. Um, and this is crucial in terms of exit from the matrix. Otherwise, what you're doing is you're <clears throat> kind of stirring sludge in a pot, and mm-hmm. you're saying, okay, I like this view, this viewpoint over here, and this seems to make sense, and I like that spiritual idea, and this is also good. And that's all on the kind of passive, receptive side of things. Right, right. Whereas what I'm talking about is completely and utterly dynamic. Yeah. And involves the liberation of enormous amounts of energy, all to the good. Mm-hmm. Well, you are an example of that for sure. You know, we only have a few minutes left, John, but I... I have to touch on in relationship to creative imagination and the power of imagination, something getting back to that. I love the interview that you did with Regina uh, on, uh, I think it was it open minds. Uh, I think it was open minds. You've done several, I know, but uh, in this particular interview, you talk about the, also the power of improvisation. I've never heard it put this way, but man, you nailed it on the head when you talked about uh, a person, I don't know if we have time to really get into it. Maybe if we have you back, we can talk about, is it Richard Jenkins? Oh, yeah. you worked with early, early on, uh, um, I think shortly after college, you were in New York, but That's he right. was, he was a profound healer and, uh, just a little thumbnail. You, you talk about how you worked with, uh, Jenkins, so we, how, how you met him, I, I can't recall, but you had the opportunity to watch him do uh, a healing modality on very high-level individuals, um, you know, in the New York City area uh, that were coming to see him, and you were watching him uh, work in a very uh, unique way that you hadn't seen before. And again, I, we don't have time to get into it right now, but maybe we can use that to kick off a little bit about the importance of improvisation, something that I am a huge advocate of when it comes to creating reality and imagination. Wow, well, I'm glad to hear that. That's great. Oh, I don't yes. hear people say that very much anymore, <laughs> but I'm very happy to hear you say that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, I'd be happy to come back at another time, and we could do a whole uh, you know, hour about Richard Jenkins and what I learned from yes. him because it was extraordinary. But basically, as you said, I was watching him. We became friends, and he said, well, sit in and just see what I do, you know, and he would be moving around and doing all kinds of things, and Sometimes he would put his hands on these people who were lying, you know, on their backs and 
eyes closed and so forth, and sometimes he wasn't touching them at all and whatever. And eventually, you know, we sat down and he said, so what do you think? I said, I don't know. I don't know what to think. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what's <laughs> happening. He said, you don't, you didn't get that part, you know? And I said, no, you know, I was like 23 years old. And he said, he looked at me and he kind of moved in a little bit. He said, guess what? It's all improvisation. Yeah. That's yeah. what I'm doing. I said, what? Now, I was a huge fan of jazz at the time, so I knew what improvisation was all about. And I said, I mean, I said, you mean there's no system here? He said, no, absolutely none. Mm -hmm. He said, that's why it works. That's right. That's why it works. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I said, wow. He said, so now when you watch me, understand that. He said, I am working spontaneously. I'm improvising every step of the way. <laughs> it's like a dance. Somebody puts on the music and they say, start dancing. He said, that's what I'm doing, but the objective is healing. Yeah. And that, in addition to just completely blowing my mind, made me so interested that I, I saw him work with people many, many times, and the outcomes were just so mind-blowing. And for him, uh, I mean, he could be a very serious person, but for him, there was a kind of a spontaneous joy, like it was all a lark, like he was just a bird in Central Park, you know, flitting mm -hmm. from one branch to another, and uh, more flitting, he more, the more he flitted, the more he enjoyed the <laughs> afternoon, and the result was these people would get off the table and say, wow. I love it. You know, so that's the beginning of that story. We've got to pick that up again, John. That is just huge. And i got to tell you, I when I heard you mention that, oh my gosh, maybe we, we should talk offline a little bit about it, but let's just say I connected immediately. I resonated immediately because I too have been, I've never used the word improvisation to describe it. But uh, I'm a student of meditation. I started when I was 13 years old. My parents dragged me to TM. And I always tell the story about how after getting the instructions for how you do transcendental meditation, I said, you know what, toss that. I'm not having that. You know, I want to be more sovereign. I wasn't using that word at the time, of course, but <laughs> in my approach. And I started to improvise. And the moment I did, I dropped the pose. I ch shut down the mantra. And I started doing things um creatively uh and things started to happen then and ever since then i have been oh let's just say in my spiritual work most of it is made i'm not going to say made up because that conjures notions of imaginary it's not imaginary it's um, it's imaginative and uh to me that is one of the biggest secrets i think that people are not aware of that there is power in improvisation i so connected with that this is what wow. I do all the time. This is why I had to reach out to you, man. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you did. I'm so glad to meet you because oh. uh, that's something that people need to understand yeah. Yeah. way more than they do. Way more than they do. And not just intellectually understand. I think it needs to be something that's felt. And, you know, I, I actually work with individuals myself on helping them to develop their intuitive skills um, but uh, imagination and improvisation is a big part of what I incorporate in my work. So again, maybe we can talk about that a little offline. Listen, we're a little over time, and I'm, I am so absolutely 
privilege and honor to have you, John. My goodness. Uh, listen, everyone, I absolutely urge you all to check out John's massive collections, The Matrix Revealed, Exit from the Matrix, and your most recent collection, Power Outside the Matrix, which really goes into excruciating detail about the use of logic and analysis to sift through the mounds and mounds of mis- and disinformation in today's media. So all of these things are packed with necessary information to meditate on. (laughs) Mm -hmm. John Rappaport, I thank you so much for your time, for your wisdom. And like I said, you are necessary now more than ever. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Although at first blush, you might think that using creative imagination flies in the face of logic and analysis, the two actually work in tandem when they are used to navigate a matrix-like existence. John is a proponent of utilizing both lines of thinking in order to live in complete harmony with our natural abilities and reclaim our individuality. To learn more about the incredible and extensive work of John Rappaport, I encourage you to visit his website at nomorefakenews.com. There you will also find his mega collections, The Matrix Revealed, Exit from the Matrix, and Power Outside the Matrix. As always, I thank you for tuning in to Conscious Inquiry. Until next time, I'm Alexis Brooks.